0: Welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 116, Prophecy and Love. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. Okay. This week, we are continuing with our study of the minor prophets, which, remember, doesn't mean that they're minor necessarily, but it just means that we know less about them and we have less written by them. The section, so we're reading Amos, the entire book of Amos and the entire book of Obadiah, but don't be intimidated. Amos is just nine chapters. Well, I might be wrong on that, but I think it's nine chapters and they're all fairly short. And then Obadiah is literally just one and it's a very short chapter. What I want to focus on is Amos. Amos lived around the same time as Isaiah and Hosea. So about 750 BC, he was born in the southern kingdom of Judah, but he was called to preach in the northern kingdom, which is unusual because usually prophets are called to preach to their own nation. The part I want to focus on is the first chapter three-ish chapters, which if you're reading through it, you might kind of skim over it. I tend to kind of, my brain kind of starts to tune, tune out whenever there's lots of doom and gloom and repent because it just feels a little repetitive. But I love how Amos does this because he does something really interesting. He spends the entire first chapter and a half condemning all the nations surrounding Israel and Judah like Syria and the Philistines and Tyre and Edom and Ammon, etc. And then he moves on to condemning northern Israel. And I'm going to talk in a minute about why I think that's interesting and why it's noteworthy. So as you read this, it will say, he will say a lot, three transgressions and four. And basically, this just means many transgressions. So just as you read, think about it that way. He says in these chapters, I will send fire into the house of Hazal, which will devour the place of Ben-Hadad. The people of Syria will go into captivity. I will not turn away the punishment thereof. I will send fire on the wall of Gaza, which shall devour the palace thereof. I will send fire on the wall of Tyrus. Then he turns his attention to the kingdom of Judah, who I would assume it seems like the northern kingdom would really enjoy hearing all of the bad things that are going to happen to the kingdom of Judah because they're so wicked because they split off from Judah in the first place. And so I'm actually I was going to say I imagine, but I know that there was rivalry there. He says that they have despised the law of the Lord, that they have not kept his commandments and that their lies call them to error. And I will send fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. So I'm sure you can imagine that the Northern kingdom who is listening to Amos preach this probably are thinking, yeah, get them. They deserve it. They're so wicked. We're so awesome. But then we see after a big long list of everybody around them is so wicked and deserves punishment, He turns his attention directly to them. They must have done a little bit of a double take and thought, wait, what? No, not us. He says, starting in verse six of chapter two, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four, meaning many transgressions, I will not turn away the punishment thereof because they have sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn away the meek. So they enjoy seeing the poor miserable and a man and his father will go into the same maid to profane my holy name. So a father and a son will go lie with the same girl. So very gross sexual immorality. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar. And they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Okay. So after reminding them, of how terrible and hypocritical their sins are, he reminds them that it was the Lord who brought them up, the people of Israel from the land of Egypt, and led them through the wilderness, and that it was he who has raised all the prophets who have come since. And yet, despite all of this, they have been commanding the prophets to prophesy not. And I think that's such an interesting... um, I was going to say phrase. It's not really an interesting phrase, but it's it's interesting that Amos points out that that's what they want of the prophets, is they don't like what they are hearing, and so they say, prophesy not. At the end of chapter 2, he warns them that no one will be able to escape the judgment of the Lord. In chapter 3, he talks to all of the 12 tribes of Israel, reminding them that they are his covenant people. Starting in verse 4, Amos asks, a bunch of rhetorical questions, reminding them that the Lord wouldn't warn them if trouble wasn't eventually going to catch up with them, if there wasn't danger. He asks, will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him, meaning a trap, if there wasn't a trap? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people be not afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Meaning if there, if there's evil, then the Lord always warns us that it's there. Next comes a verse that you will likely recognize. Verse seven, surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Okay. So we have confirmation here. If for lack of me thinking of a better word right now, but confirmation that the Lord does not allow for evil to exist without also a voice of warning. We have been warned throughout the entirety of human history that evil is there, that it is something to fear, and that we need to stay close to God. That entire section is basically asking the rhetorical question, would the Lord warn you if there wasn't anything to warn you of? What is our prophet warning us of? And are we ever guilty of what Amos said to the Israelites saying to the prophet or our prophet or to our apostles, prophesy not because we don't like what they have to say. For instance, the family proclamation says, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations, the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. There are a whole lot of people who don't like what the family proclamation has to say. And that family proclamation is warning us that the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets will come upon individuals, communities, and nations if we don't protect it. And that is for sure coming. President Nelson has given us lots of warnings in his time as prophet so far. Here are just a few. He says, During these perilous times of which the Apostle Paul prophesied, Satan is no longer even trying to hide his attacks on God's plan. Emboldened evil abounds. Therefore, the only way to survive spiritually is to be determined to let God prevail in our lives, to learn to hear his voice, and to use our energy to help gather Israel. He also said, Our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will perform some of his mightiest works between now and when he comes again. We will see miraculous indications that God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, preside over this church in majesty and glory. But in coming days, it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. He also said, I plead with you now to take charge of your own testimony of Jesus Christ and his gospel, work for it, nurture it so that it will grow, feed it truth. Don't pollute it with false philosophies of unbelieving men and women. As you make the continual strengthening of your testimony of Jesus Christ your highest priority, watch for miracles to happen in your life. These are just a little small snippet of things that President Nelson has said in the last few years, but we are quite literally living in a time where we have more access to all of the recorded words of the prophets throughout human history, ancient and modern, than any people ever have. And that is such a testimony builder because we know that we are living in the fullness of times. And that includes the fullness of all of the words of the prophets that we need to have. We have apostles speaking to us now. We have access to live social media feeds of all 12 apostles in first presidency. And what is that resounding message of warning? Now is the time to prepare to meet God. Alma twelve twenty four. There was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. Therefore, this life became a probationary state, a time to prepare to meet God. Alma 34:32. for behold, this life is the time for men to prepare to meet God. Yea, behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And now, as I have said unto you before, as ye have had so many witnesses, therefore I beseech of you that ye do not procrastinate the day of your repentance until the end. For after this day of life, which is given unto us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness wherein there can be no labor performed. Our prophets have taught us that part of preparing to meet God, a crucial part, is repenting. They have taught us that perfection is not expected nor required as long as we are repenting and using the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ continually. But they also clearly teach that imperfection that we all are experiencing in mortality should never be a justification for sin. When we sin, which we will, we must always acknowledge that it is sin and repent. There is danger in comforting ourselves too much with the reality and expectation of our imperfection that we forget that although the imperfection was part of the plan, quite literally part of our progression, it was never justified. Our imperfection made it necessary for the Son of God to come to earth and suffer, bleed, and die for our sins that justice might be satisfied. The imperfection that we are sometimes tempted to justify was paid for. We must never disrespect that sacrifice by treating our sins as though they are anything less than an offense to God. In the Book of Mormon, Nephi was shown a vision by an angel where he saw the Savior and the path that his life took here on earth. First Nephi, starting in chapter 11, verse 26. And the angel said unto me again, look and behold the condescension of God. And I looked, and I beheld the Redeemer of the world, of whom my Father had spoken. And I also beheld the prophet who should prepare the way before him. And the Lamb of God went forth and was baptized of him. And after he was baptized, I beheld the heavens open, and the Holy Ghost come down out of heaven, and abide upon him in the form of a dove. And I beheld that he went forth ministering unto the people, in power and great glory. And the multitudes were gathered together to hear him. And I beheld that they cast him out from among them, and I also beheld twelve others following him. And it came to pass that they were carried away in the Spirit from before my face, and I saw them not. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, Look. And I looked, and I beheld the heavens open again, and I saw angels descending upon the children of men, and they did minister unto them. And he spake unto me again, saying, Look. And I looked, and I beheld the Lamb of God going forth among the children of men. And I beheld multitudes of people who were sick and who were afflicted with all manner of diseases, and with devils and unclean spirits. And the angel spake and showed all these things unto me. And they were healed by the power of the Lamb of God, and the devils and the unclean spirits were cast out. And it came to pass that the angel spake unto me again, saying, Look. And I looked and I beheld the Lamb of God, that he was taken by the people. Yea, the Son of the everlasting God was judged of the world. And I saw and bear record. And I, Nephi, saw that he was lifted up upon the cross and slain for the sins of the world. Our imperfection was paid for. We must never disrespect that sacrifice by treating our sins as though they are anything less than an offense to God and something that was paid for. President Nelson said in this last general conference, as I have stated before, the gathering of Israel is the most important work taking place on the earth today. One crucial element of this gathering is preparing a people who are able, ready, and worthy to receive the Lord when he comes again. A people who have already chosen Jesus Christ over this fallen world. A people who rejoice in their agency to live the higher, holier laws of Jesus Christ. Are we living up to that great calling or are we like the Israelites sometimes? Do we enjoy at all condemning others for their bad behavior? The most obvious example that comes to my mind is political parties. Ask yourself sincerely, do you relish a little condemning someone who has different political or social views from you? What about in your family or in your ward? Are you casting stones before looking at yourself? He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. The people, as President Nelson puts it, who are able, ready, and worthy to receive the Lord when he comes again, a people who have already chosen Jesus Christ over this fallen world, a people who rejoice in their agency to live the higher, holier laws of Jesus Christ, those people are looking inward at their own hearts first. The people who will be worthy to receive the Lord are those who are laser focused on using the atonement of Jesus Christ in their own lives. The people who will be worthy to receive the Lord will be a people who have taken serious the calling of the gathering of Israel on both sides of the veil with reverence and a dedication reflective of the sacred sacrifice the Lord has made to make this all possible. I want to be one of those people. I have so much work to do so many areas that I can improve and I know that the Lord expects so much of me because I am a part of covenant Israel President Nelson gave a talk in a leadership meeting before general conference in March this year and it was considered important enough that it was then later printed in October in the Liahona In this talk he talks about the Hebrew word hesed He said once we make a covenant with God we leave neutral ground forever. God will not abandon his relationship with those who have forged such a bond with him. In fact, all those who have made a covenant with God have access to a special kind of love and mercy. In the Hebrew language, that covenantal love is called hesed. Chesed has no adequate English equivalent. Translators of the King James Version of the Bible must have struggled with how to render chesed in English. They often chose loving kindness. This captures much, but not all, of the meaning of Hesed. Other translations were also rendered, such as mercy and goodness. Hased is a unique term describing a covenant relationship in which both parties are bound to be loyal and faithful to each other. Hased is a special kind of love and mercy that God feels for and extends to those who have made a covenant with Him. And we reciprocate with hased for Him. Because God has hased for all those who have covenanted with Him, He will love them. He will continue to work with them and offer them opportunities to change. He will forgive them when they repent. And should they stray, he will help them find their way back to him. Once you and I have made a covenant relationship with God, our relationship with him becomes much closer than before our covenant. Now we are bound together. Because of our covenant with God, he will never tire in his efforts to help us. And we will never exhaust his merciful patience with us. Each of us has a special place in God's heart. He has high hopes for us. These are promises and blessings available to you. Right before I just said that quote from President Nelson, I said, I am a part of covenant Israel. And that just hit me. I am one of God's people. I have covenanted with God. That is not insignificant. I am a daughter of my Heavenly Father who loves me and I love Him. I have made covenants with my God. And because of that, I qualify for special love and mercy because He has said for me. And our goal as a people is to extend that invitation to enter into that special relationship, special covenant relationship with God to anyone that we can affect. Anyone who is in the world living life right now and those who we do temple work for on the other side of the veil. Gathering Israel. The Lord loves Israel. He loves you. He wants to gather all into Israel, into that covenant relationship. Let's make sure that as the prophets warn us of danger, that we never say, as the Israelites said, prophesy not. Those warnings are a manifestation of God's love for us. He warns us so that we can readjust and align our lives and choices into the incomprehensible safety of His arms. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.